Hey you, thanks for being a valued listener of Remedial Herstory. Please consider subscribing so we can keep bringing you content. I wanted to let you know about a few things we offer beyond the podcast. If you love what we're talking about here, then you are going to love the Remedial Herstory Master's Classes we have linked in the show notes and on our website. We have three courses, one on pedagogy, U.S. history, and world history, and of course, talking about women in all of those contexts. We also have an annual Summer Educators Retreat, which is in person. Details about that are on our website. Our website is also packed with learning materials, including articles for every era of U.S. and world history that we built with a collaboration of over 20 historians. We also have lesson plans for elementary, middle, and high school that involve analysis of primary source material and get students doing history. We also have a video series that goes along with that. All of this is only possible because of the generous contributions from our patrons. You can also support Remedial Herstory at remedialherstory.com giving or by becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash remedialherstory. Thanks for helping us make herstory. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Today, we are going to be talking about the Boston Marathon. She has running hands. Let's get into this. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Brooke, in this episode, we are going to talk about the history of the Boston Marathon and how it excluded women for so ding-ding long. But the Boston Marathon is next week. Wow. That came up fast. Yeah, I know. Have you ever been? No, I haven't. We used to go every year for a couple of years. We would go to the marathon and then we'd go to the Red Sox game. It was really fun. That's uh, sounds like a great day. It was. It was always really cold. Yeah, <laughs> Boston in April is frigid. Um, but it was really fun. Yeah, the first year we didn't go was the horrible bombings, which we won't get into in this podcast. But yeah, um, it's an incredible event, and yeah. just the energy in the city on the yeah. day is just like wild. It's very cool. Yeah, you know, I do endurance sport things. I'm on the Granite State Endurance Project team. Yeah, and you're a runner. I am a runner, but I have never done a standalone marathon. You've always done tri. Yeah, tri Ironmans. So yeah. I've done marathons in that, but it's a totally different let's, game. Well, let's tell those non-marathoners. What does a marathon consist of? An Ironman or a marathon? Marathon. A marathon is 26.2 miles. And the point I was trying to bring up here is that I have so many friends who've done it, and, like, I'm so in awe of that. Because Boston's <laughs> – you have to qualify. You well, know? yeah. So, like, there's so there's Boston, New York, and Chicago are, like, I would say the biggest ones in the country. Yeah. And you have to qualify to get into them. If you don't qualify, you can fundraise to get into yeah. them. You can get – but you have to get a bid. But, like, to qualify, like, for our age, I don't know, Brooke, it's like you have to run a 730-mile pace Well, you have to run so many halves and fulls before then to qualify, too. Like, you have to register so many races yeah, to even get in. And then you have to sponsor – you have to be sponsored or get funding for yourself, Mm. too. Like, you have to raise a certain threshold of money to even get your bib. Do you know anyone racing next week? Um, I did last year. I knew a couple of people. Yeah. Um, my sister-in-law's best friend, Jill. 
Yeah. Avid listener of the podcast. Oh, Jill. What um, up? is a marathon runner. My sister-in-law did the Chicago marathon. Yeah. Um, and then her friend Jill, she's on the Boston a few times. Oh, nice. The Boston. The Boston. Yeah. I want to give a little shout out to my childhood friend, Lindy Heffernan, who will be running on <gasps> Monday. Go, Lindy. Let's go, Lindy. Yeah, that's awesome. I know some people that run every year. Like, it's, yeah. that's their race. Yeah, I'm sure some of my teammates are in there, too, but I just don't know. There's a lot of, like, milestones throughout the Boston Marathon that I know about of, like, once you reach these different thresholds, there's this yeah. one piece of the the race that's this, that's like, this kill hill yeah it's this awful mountainous hill that people have to climb and it's at a certain peak of the race that isn't ideal for a long distance runner yeah and it really kills people like it's just not dead kill but like your body just falls apart and there's so many tents along the side right there to like give you medical care yeah and support um but yeah there's there's some really cool athletes that run there's so many charities like the amount of money that they raise on that one day yeah for charities is unbelievable. It's really cool. It is really cool. So I think what we want to talk about, and I think something that should inspire women to, one, be grateful that they have this opportunity and that so many pioneers came before them to do it. I think, two, make us think a little bit more about the ways in which women's sports continue to be held back. Like, just because women are allowed to do the Boston Marathon does not mean that they get equal sponsorships or equal press coverage or fair press coverage, right? There's going to be a lot of like, you know, like paying attention to the male front runners and then like pay attention to like how much airtime those women get. And I want to... That's unfortunate. I didn't realize that was still the case. Oh, constant. And then equal pay, you know, like like these people are training, they're doing the same miles, the same sweat, the same whatever. And like, they're not going to retire in the same place from running. So I think pay attention to that. Think about that as you're watching this sport. And what we want to do is back it up and tell you about the history of the Boston Marathon. So to uh, give us that history, we have one of our board members, Dr. Valerie Moyer is here, everybody, to, um, to teach everybody a little bit about this challenging history. Awesome. Let's get into it. I'm Val Moyer. I'm a recent PhD from Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Stony Brook University. Uh, right now, I do research for Athlete Ally, which is an LGBTQ plus uh, inclusion advocacy group for sports, specifically for sports. So my research is on policies around testosterone in the women's category of sports. I'm an interdisciplinary scholar, so I'm looking at this a little bit historically and drawing on kind of current debates to make sense of what's going on through a critical feminist perspective. And then I also teach at Simmons College right now, and I'm a board member of the Remedial History Project. Yes, you are. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm also a distance runner myself, so I'm excited to talk about the history of the Boston Marathon today. I am so excited. I am also a distance runner, um, and I have never actually done a standalone marathon, though it scares the Really? But you've done them as part of part Iron of Ironman. Yeah. But I don't know. There's wild. something about there's something like I would much rather do an Ironman than even like a half marathon. Really? It's like you have to run so much faster. Like I look at the times these <laughs> guys I'm like, <laughs> it's funny. It's amazing the spread that has happened. Like, so I ran distance in college, but that's a 5K. You know, yep. I never even did a 10K. And so I've only ever run 14 miles 
in like a practice run. Yeah. Uh, and I'm training for a marathon now. And that seems really long to me. So I'm like ready to get back to 5Ks and shorter <laughs> races when I'm done. <laughs> so is Boston your goal eventually? Boston is the goal eventually. But you don't go that fast on that course. So I want to get, uh, I want to try to get a faster time. I'm trying to beat my uncle's time. Yeah, you do. Because <laughs> my dad's time is too fast. So yeah, have some goals in mind. Hopefully one of them will qualify me to Boston in the, you know, in the process. Oh my so we'll God. <laughs> I love that. That's so amazing. Yeah. So let's talk about Boston. I, yes, this is such an iconic event and so steeped in really, really cool history. And before we get to it, I want to know, like, where do you go for sources of information? I mean, you can find little, you know, kind of blurbs about these things, but where do you go for sources of information about sort of the history of the, the Boston Marathon? Yeah. So there's a lot of great press co coverage, obviously, and we are right by Boston. So archives are fantastic. But again, like a lot of things, you got to really dig for women's history. Catherine Switzer's book, First Woman to Officially Do the Boston Marathon, she has a whole book where she talks about it is great. And then I have read a couple scholarly articles and I'll have to like send you the details, but scholars are thinking about is this feminist activism for women to compete in these events and one scholar talks about it as Jamie Schultz talks about it as physical activism like the fact of being out there on the course so those are the things that I I look at but I think a lot of media coverage is also a great place to start and really dig into mm. And I, I'm sure today we're going to talk about two really important women, Bobby Gibb and Catherine Switzer, the two, mm -hmm. you know, kind of the two first women to to really champion this race for women. And one of the sources, I always think images are a really cool way to bring women's history into the classroom. And the image of uh, Catherine Switzer on the course, running with her coach and her Boyfriend, boyfriend, right? yep, yep, and what a and and the race director behind her trying to drag her off the course, like that visual. If you've never seen it, oh boy, that should be in any 20th century course on U.S. history because it is yeah. such a physical example of somebody literally physically assaulting a woman to keep her from accessing something men have like, oh, mm -hmm. there's so much to analyze there. Yes. Yes. It's a great visual. The other source that I forgot to plug that I should is yeah. a new book called Running While Black by Allison Mariella Desir. Mm. It's a not only historical, she really blends the history of distance running with her own experience of, of training for a marathon and getting into distance running. And through her work, she's dug up a ton of archival stuff on Black women distance runners and Black men who are distance running, who we often don't kind of put into this like distance running history canon, um, but that were there and were really influential to the sport as well. So that's a great, yeah. great resource. Even her, she has like a chart of, you know, a historical timeline and the first two pages are like mind blowing. That's wow. great. Okay, cool. Yeah. I love that reference. I need to check that out. Yeah. So talk to me about the history. You know, we've, we've plugged some really powerful things. Yeah. Um, what, talk to me about the, the history of the Boston Marathon and, and, and explain sort of like 
Why did this become so contentious in the 1960s? Why this race in particular? Yeah. So I think it's the longest running marathon in the U.S. So one of the first events of of this distance, of a, a road race over the marathoning distance, because running was not always this massively popular sport that it is today. And so that was really taking off in in the 60s and 70s, but more so later in the 80s. But we also have to kind of go back and remember that there was this idea that sports were bad for women, right? That uh, like on a biological level, that it would affect their fertility and reproductive capacity, or that they weren't, you know, physically capable of this kind of, especially endurance races. So women did not compete in anything over the 400 at the Olympics until like 1964 or something like that. And when they did originally compete at the 800, there were some women who, you know, collapsed in fatigue at the end of a race, like you do, like the men did. And so organizers said like, no, no, we can't have this. You know, they're, they're incapable of doing this. So there was this real block and belief that women's bodies could not physically handle a marathon. And what we know now is we're really good at distance running. Yeah. And like, (laughs) and like can hang with men in some cases, like, yeah. And the longer, the better. Yeah. I've always heard that people thought your uterus would fall out. True or false? True. But we have to remember that like, not all doctors agree on everything. You know what I mean? So like, that's sort of the extreme, but they were very scared about the delayed onset of your first period and thought that that was a real, a really big problem. Right. And, and now we kind of understand it more or differently for women athletes. So this was all happening around this time. And also we have this sort of backdrop of the civil rights era, kind of the very beginnings of, of second wave feminism. So stuff is happening uh in the world a lot of this running distance running is this combination of a long endurance sports event and taking up public space like being allowed to train and compete safely out in the open and in public space and so that also limited a lot of black people men and women from doing this safely uh and still does today but for women in the the 60s, as these marathons and road races were taking off, they were races that were happening on streets, on public streets. And so we often talk about Catherine Switzer, and we totally will, but women were jumping into these road races and marathons, including the Boston Marathon, unofficially, because they were in public. They could they could jump into the race and they could jump out before, you know, the finish line. Or even cross the finish line because it was not this huge, like fanfare, closed streets sort of event that it is today. Uh, and so they were taking up space in public and, and that was okay. Or no one could kick them off of the course. And so they really used that to their advantage. Basically, there's sort of this like fervor happening societally in the sixties and seventies. More women are going to college. More women are starting to, you know, push to be in sport. And so that's what's happening in distance running as well. Catherine Switzer talks about this a lot in her first person account, but people kept asking her, like, are you a feminist? Are you a women's liber? And she was saying, no, I just wanted to run. And that's sort of the the account of, of many of these women is like, no, I felt good doing this. I wanted to be out there and prove it to myself. And it was much more personal than, or at least they considered it not really a political thing, not really a part of 
the second wave feminist movement. We have to keep that backdrop in mind that it's all happening at the same time. And so these ideas are out there. I don't know that I knew that this was a really common thing for people to be to be jumping in. There are sort of these two iconic women, you know, we got Bobby Gibb who jumps in and and does it. Mm-hmm. And so but I just thought she was a badass kind of off on her own and I didn't realize she was part of this sort of like trend to do that. Um and she gets away with it, right? Cuz she's sort of this like unofficial person who did the race and to da. Yeah, yeah. When Catherine Switzer does it, it was the the second or third time that Bobby Gibb had run the Boston Marathon unofficially. So they didn't, you know, they didn't see each other on the starting line, but they were both there. It's something in between that. It is a trend, but it's not like big groups of women are going out together and crashing these races. It's like one person not knowing that the other one is doing that. And, you know, they made these like careful plans of how to get into these races and how to not get noticed on the starting line in order to compete and to see what they could do. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So Catherine Switzer does it more sneakily because she actually registers mm-hmm. yes. um, as K Switzer um, to sneakily hide her identity. (laughs) Yep. And I don't, I mean, I know some details about it. I know she runs with a coach and I know her time is not anything like extraordinary. You know, when she pushes that boundary, how long is it before women are actually welcomed into it? Because it's, um, she's televised, right? And I think one of the things that makes it a big deal is that the camera crews are like, hey, dang, that's a woman running this race. And they're like, focusing on her, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think the lead up is also interesting because her coach initially didn't think she could do it or didn't want to train her. Um, And then they started running together and he realized like, oh, she could do it. And they did a marathon in practice together. um, And that's kind of what convinces him that this is possible. And then, yeah, she registers as Kay Switzer sports bras were not invented at this time. So the what they're wearing is also really interesting to look at from a historical perspective. Bobby Gibb wears like a, a bathing suit under shorts because there's no sports bras and things like that. So equipment is also a part of you know, access for women to these things. Can't imagine running in a bathing suit. Oh my God, yeah. all the chafing. Yes, I know. It looks horrible. Um, under boob. <laughs> I'm like hurting for her. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, you're right that the controversy kind of comes because the photographers realize that Catherine's in the race and that she has a number. That's the other big part of it. Um, and the, ra- the race directors are part of the amateur athletic Union, which was the big organizer of sports at this time, crossing over, I think, between collegiate sports and post-collegiate sports, um, also because the Olympics were amateur. So it was it, that was kind of the governing body. And so they were the ones keeping women out of, of marathoning. The race director like reacts horribly, tries to pull her off the course, but later through continual pushing from women kind of comes to his senses like I think I've seen recent interviews or later interviews with him and he was like yeah I don't like I don't know what I was doing and sort of there's this idea like trying to uphold the rules too like the rules stay that say that women can't do this and so we're just following the rules but after that after the attention that Catherine Switzer gets there are you know more women 
pushing to be a part of these events. And really interesting forms of protest too. So there's an instance, and I'm forgetting the year, but in the New York City Marathon, where they were going to have two different start times for men and women, and the women were supposed to go first. And I think they like sat down on the starting line and waited for the the men's start time to go to kind of say like, this is not, we do not need a separate event. Um, You know, there's no reason for us to be separated in this way. So it's an ongoing thing. But as the, I think, women's entrance into marathoning is part of this big running boom that later comes in the 80s. So yeah. And that reminds me of the marathon was not the women's marathon was not a part of the Olympics until 1984. So that's LA really hot day. And that Joan Benoit wins. So she's from Maine. She's a cool person. She's still competing if you if you want to look her up. But she wins from the US. And Gabrielle Scheiss is a Swiss competitor who also has like a, a problem with the heat and is collapsing on the track during her finishing lap. Gets up and walks and does not look, you know, good going across <laughs> the finish line. But that's also like, it's renews this kind of like, oh, should women do it? You know, are they capable? And I got to interview her a while ago for Running Times magazine. And she she was very nonchalant about it. She was like, the the men were collapsing too. It was a hot day in LA. Like I wasn't used to it. And so yeah, I had trouble, but like it shouldn't have been as big of a deal as it was. Like it should not have said that women were incapable of of competing in such an event. But it was because it was the first Olympic marathon that it that there was so much kind of pressure and high stakes around it. Yeah. And if you follow endurance sports enough, you know that every once in a while people just bonk and blow yeah. up and um, men do it too. You know, it's not like only women are are blowing up on these races, you know, yeah. but right. Like there's so much pressure when you're one of five women who've done this thing so publicly or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's interesting. And I think it's real. I think that's so cool. And it speaks to, I think the danger of being a minority in something um, and how you end up having to be the voice for your people, right? Instead of yeah. like, you no, know, can't she just be Catherine Switzer? Can't she just be Joan? Ben- you know, like why why do they have to be all women, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yet they do because they are they are championing women um, and the women's cause or at least physical, you know, their involvement in, in this physical realm and, and that health aspect. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is so exciting. I'm so excited for all the people that are competing next week. I am wishing them all luck and yeah. I'm grateful that they can stand on the backs of these giants who've paved this path for them to be able to compete. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really cool. And there's there's yeah. some good articles um, from more recent history about some of these women as the anniversaries of these events. Yes. Yeah. And I know mm-hmm. both Bobby Gibb and Catherine Switzer were welcomed back and ran the marathon for their 50th anniversaries, um, which is like mm-hmm. so cool. I want to be running yeah. marathons at the I know. That'd be cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think there's also some really cool uh, groups cropping up in Boston that are women of color led and centered the pioneers um which takes its name from the New York pioneers which was started by Ted Corbett who was a black distance runner like early on when you know very few people were doing marathoning 
to kind of also like reclaim their space in the sport um, because distance running has been so white for so long. So pioneers and trailblazers spelled with like an H. So it's like trailblaze hers. Um, love that. <laughs> yeah. Are two, are two groups in the space that are really trying to, you know, center women of color and black women in endurance and in running in particular. Um, and I know, I think the pioneers puts on a 26 point true, which is trying to also kind of reclaim spaces of Boston that have been left out of the official Boston course. And so they're in like historically black neighborhoods and spaces where people of color live in Boston to show more of the city instead of what's what's been kind of the dedicated course. And I think that happens the weekend before Boston or Saturday before or a whole week before, but a very different kind of event, like small local kind of in some ways getting back to the roots of distance running um, instead of this this huge, you know, commercialized fanfare, which is also very fun. Like I can't <laughs> can't get over the the hype of Boston either. So yeah. And so another historical figure that often gets overlooked when we really focus in on Catherine Switzer um, is Marilyn Bevins, who ran Boston in 1975 and came in fourth place. And so she would have been the first Black woman to really be this successful at this new mar- or new marathon for women, right? Newly open to women. And Marilyn Bevins, as a Black woman, is competing really well uh, and is often kind of left out of this history. Yeah. yeah. And I think part of that is be- by design, right? Like, there's a lot of efforts in the early years of the of Olympic runners to actually like block these black women from competing against and, and center white women. And so they they say it's like, oh, well, she's running better than you or whatever. But like the black women know that they've been like making these times and they should be competing for their teams. And then I think the media, at least at least white media, tends to like focus in on white achievements, white history more. Um, it's you know, that's a product of like media racism as well to not highlight these, these achievements. Makes me wonder, like, would we focus on Bobby Gibb if she wasn't white as much, you know, when there are so many women that are jumping into these kinds of races? Yeah, I think it is media focus. And then I think uh, there's sort of the narrative of like, distance running as being really popularized in Oregon by Prefontaine and the beginning of Nike. And that's sometimes you know, this is what Alice and Mariella this year critiques a lot is that we go back to that as the origin story of running. But when we look at women's history of distance running, of Black women's history of distance running, we get a different picture. Um, and we also get different limitations. So like instead of a race director trying to kick Catherine Switzer off of the course, it's can I go outside safely and run in these, you know, highly segregated neighborhoods in the 40s, 50s, 60s? Today, like there are more safety concerns for women of color in cities and neighborhoods to to go out in public and run. And so I think those kinds of barriers we don't think about as much. And then when we look at like who sh- who is able to get to this level of racing, sometimes we naturalize it. And that kind of like that like feeds into this narrative of black people being better at track or sprinting when really that doesn't take into account these like large structural factors of of public safety and access to like 
endurance and outdoor spaces. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you for bringing that up too. Cause I think that's a really important aspect to, you know, to like race and class the history that we're talking about always. Mm-hmm. Dr. Moyer, thank you so much for talking this through with everybody. It's so timely with the with the marathon next week. And I am wishing everybody who's racing luck. And I hope people yes. are it's such yes. a cool, it's such a cool event, a cool display of athleticism. And I'm so excited for all the women that are out there pushing, pushing the boundaries. Yes. Thanks for having me, Kelsey. And yeah, good luck to everyone. I love thinking about all the innovations that we've had. So like when you take a sip of water or when you have your, you know, gel or snacks, uh, like thank everyone that came before you that figured it it out. When you put your sports bra on, like. Oh my God. Yeah. Thank God for the sports bra. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Thanks for, that was invented in like 1977 in Burlington, Vermont. So thanks to those people to really show us how to do the marathon. And, those uh, Vermonters, they, they know. That's they awesome. know. They figured it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Moyer. Thanks for listening. As a special thank you to our patrons, exclusive access to the extended episode is available on Patreon. You can become a patron at www.patreon.com slash remedial herstory. Come join us. See you there. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.